Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Brad Beefus, president of Scientific Anglers. Brad shares his lifelong journey in our sport from front range anglers to SA headquarters and everything in between. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we move on to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's brought to you by our friends at Ascent Fly Fishing. Peter and his team are passionate about our fly fishing community, whether it's helping you be more productive on the water or making sure their team members can meet their daily needs. Let the folks at Ascent use the best science to put together a box of affordable, high-quality flies for your next outing. Visit them online today at www.ascentflyfishing.com. Use the code ARTICULATE10, all caps, all one word, the number 10, to get 10% off your order. Now, on to our interview. Well, Brad, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition at the Articulate Fly. I always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. You know, I know a couple come to mind, and uh, I know that both of them were pre-kindergarten, and I'd say it's probably four years old, um, and we used to, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, on the front range of Colorado, and um, we would do family vacations pretty frequently to Gunnison, Colorado, up in the Gunnison Valley. And, um, at that, when I was young like that, I remember, my, you know, my dad and my brothers and I, and my mom, and even my grandparents, um, fishing at Blue Mesa Reservoir and, you know, fishing with a, with a bait caster, a spinning rod and dunking worms and salmon eggs and catching browns and rainbows out of the, out of the lake. And, can remember that the, the one that comes to mind specifically, I had got my, um, both sets of my grandparents on both sides of the family were, were farm and ranch people on the, the Eastern Plains and the front range of Colorado. And my one grandfather had gotten me some knee high rubber boots and can remember standing on the bank, pulling on a fish and having my older brother, um, hold onto my shirt because my, the, and I, mean, I was just small. It wasn't wasn't that it was a giant fish, but I, I was sliding in that mud towards the lake shore when I was fighting fish. Um, and it's it's something that my you know my my mom still jokes about today when she, when she thinks about uh, some of those trips that we made as a family up to Gunnison. Yeah, that's really neat. When did you get pulled into the dark side of fly fishing? Fly fishing, you know, I had kind of a. An, interesting introduction my dad fly fished a little bit when he was when he was younger um you know and that was kind of the he he did it in the 50s and 60s uh and you know that entailed swinging wet flies you know or fishing wet flies um sometimes putting a bait hook on a, a leader on a fly line and drifting a worm um and he had a fly rod at the house that was a um a, it was a phillips and bamboo rod and I played with that a little bit, never really knew much about it, kind of, you know, sort of did it, but not, didn't really know what I was doing. And I got a fly tying kit for my eighth birthday and actually started tying flies before I started actually fly fishing. And it's pretty shortly after that, it was, you know, it was probably later that summer, um, about six months later, um, that I got a little, my parents had gotten me a little starter kit, um, fly rod. And I kind of learned on my dad's bamboo rod, but it was an old line. It was in really rough shape. Um, it, it just, it was difficult, you know, looking back on it, it was like, it was a major struggle to try and enter into the sport with that long before internet and, you know, YouTube videos where there was instruction everywhere. So really self-taught myself to cast and um ironically one of my you know my first fly lines was a scientific anglers air cell line and um that that's what really got me going that and then i i think it might have man it might have been a Cortland uh outfit rod of some type at that time that my parents had gotten me um I'm not, not even really sure what, what all happened with that rod. If one of my brothers has it, or if we'd sold it at a yard sale as I, as I gathered more gear, but that, you know, so probably just before my ninth birthday was when I actually started casting a fly rod and getting a little more serious about it. And I, you know, I still continued to 
avid angler my whole childhood growing up. And um, we had a lake close to the house I grew up in that had panfish and bass and carp. And um, it was just a couple blocks away. I could walk down there, ride my bike down and, you know, fish for about anything I'd want to there. Um, And didn't really do a a lot of fly fishing until I got into junior high and, and first couple of years of high school. And I took an outdoor ed class uh, at my high school and half of that semester of that course was fly tying and a little bit of fly fishing. So I, I did that my freshman year in high school, took the class, got a credit for it. It was a PE credit. And, uh, the next two and a half years of high school, I was a teaching assistant for that teacher. Um, just, I was started tying flies commercially and I could demonstrate a fly to the class. And then I could, uh, uh, basically sit in class for two hours a day and tie flies for orders. So I was getting paid to go to school for at least for that two hour block of time um, and doing something that I was really passionate about. And that's really, I would say high school was when it really started to, to blossom for me. And my, my dad had some pretty significant health issues and um, couldn't do a lot of fishing at that point in my life, but they, you know, my parents were great making time for those summer vacations, taking me up to Idaho and Montana and Wyoming and, um, you know, all over Colorado, uh, to, to fish a lot of different water and explore a lot of different places. And that's when my, my growth in the sport really started to develop and accelerate. Yeah. Very, very neat. And I know you joined front range anglers when you were in high school. I mean, what drew you into the industry? You know, it's one thing to be a passionate fisherman, uh, but it's another thing to be drawn into the industry at such a young age. It was, you know, I really, I feel extremely lucky to have had that opportunity when I did. Um, uh, you know, I was, I was mowing lawns to make money in the summertime and that's what was, uh, supporting my, my fly tying materials and, scraping together money to, to buy tackle and waders and that kind of stuff. And, uh, with, bought the majority of my materials in front range anglers that it, it opened in 1982. And I was in there as a customer from the very early days. Um, and they offered me the opportunity that, you know, kind of nurtured and helped me along with my, my fly tying. And, um, they offered me the opportunity to teach some fly tying classes and then come in, do some limited hours and start stocking shelves when product would come in and got to do a couple Saturday morning tying demos during the winter in there. And, um, it just, you know, the, the owner at the time there, uh, Dick Reeves was the gentleman, um, what was a great mentor from a, a retail, you know, customer service level, um, standpoint and just very patient and willing to share his knowledge about fly fishing with me. And, um, you know, just uh, developed a really good community of anglers that were customers, got involved in Trout Unlimited uh, in, in high school with the Boulder Flycasters and had a, you know, more expanded network of, of anglers. And, um, you know, it was, it, it was great because I had a lot of those customers, um, you know, when I was in ninth, 10th grade, didn't have a driver's license and, um, you know, customers were inviting to take me fishing. So I got to spend a lot of time in Cheeseman Canyon on the South Platte and along some of the smaller front range streams, just as a, a tag along with, with customers and, um, and a couple of the people that worked in the store at the time. Yeah, that's really neat. And I know you, you ultimately became a co-owner and spent 15 years at front range anglers. Can you tell us a little bit about that time and kind of what you learned while you were there? Yeah, I think, you know, it was a, it was a great time in our industry because when I got into the sport and the, and kind of working in the industry in the early eighties like that, it was before the, you know, I'll use air quotes, the movie came out. Um, and you know, it was, it was very, you know, a small tight knit group of industry people that there were, you know, relative to general fishing or, or maybe, you know, the hunting industry, a very small kind of cottage industry. And I was always drawn to the fly tying. I loved the the artistic and the creative side of that. Um, and it was a way for me to, to be able to make some money to be able to fish and travel and do some of that stuff. But I think that, um, you know, th- then we kind of went through the, the business crew at Front Range Anglers. Um, we were, we didn't have a guide service in those early days or do any trip hosting. It was all just retail and education. And as the store grew and we moved into a, a different space in the same shopping mall in, in South Boulder, and I worked into a management position and then later ownership, um, 
you know, I had, had some great people that worked for me that have now gone on to do other things in the industry as well, work for other brands or their sales reps or they have their own outfitting and guiding businesses, et cetera. So it was, it was cool to see that and to see how you can, even not really knowing at the time, how mentoring and pulling out their enthusiasm for the sport by what we were able to do with our little team at Front Range Anglers was re- is really cool for me to look back on now and see the success and the enjoyment they've had out of working in the industry. And I, and again, wasn't really even thinking, I was so young at the time, I, I wasn't even really thinking about that type of stuff. Um, but that's what was happening within our little culture in the business. And it was, you know, certainly the the movie and the boom, the movie River runs through it and the new flux of people that it brought into the sport. Um, the sport started to, to grow at a much more rapid rate, a lot of new participants coming into it. Uh, it was a great time to be in retail and, and we were fortunate in, in Boulder because we had a very outdoor oriented community with paddle sports and hiking and camping and backpacking and golfers, et cetera. Um, so, and with the university there, and they had a pretty active fly fishing group uh, at, at the university and club. And um, the, the, just the culture that surrounded that was really cool. So I feel fortunate because we were a little insulated maybe from some of the other destination type shops, you know, as, as economy would ebb and flow, our business always remained really strong because we had that, that outdoor community, if you will, as a customer base. Um, and at, at about the time that I was entertaining getting out of that, it got married, started a family. Um, my, my son, Tyler had just been born and, um, w- with a partner in the fly shop, I knew that, um, I wouldn't be able to support a family and do the things that I wanted to do, um, with, with two of us drawing an income out of the business. And the internet was starting to become a bigger presence. You know, we never did catalog. We never did a web store in my time there. Um, but that was all starting to really morph and change and the world of retail was changing. So I knew I wanted to stay in the industry. I started looking around and, um, my sales rep at the time for Ross reels was the national sales manager at Ross. Uh, he lived on the front range and worked remotely from the, the Montrose facility and as I kind of started putting feelers out, he said, hey, we've got a um, inside sales and customer service manager position that's going to be opening up. Um, would love to talk to you about it. And it just, you know, the opportunity, I, I poked around, looked at some other avenues, talked to some other brands, um, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. It was a little bit of a scary time, but um, you know, I think it's one of those things I kind of learned in retail that you, you've got to take some risks to reap some of the rewards, and that starts to open new doors that you maybe didn't see. So, um, you know, for me personally, that's always been a really good looking back on some of those experiences, a really good um, leadership learning opportunity of, you know, it's okay to take some risk, it's okay to fail. Um, because sometimes the doors that that opens provides even greater opportunities. So, um, that was, you know, it was a great transition. The shop allowed me to, uh, in my time there, we did a, the last, oh, probably eight years or so that I was at the store. Um, we did a lot of destination travel. So we were hosting trips to Canada for pike, for Alaska, for the normal species there. A lot of um, saltwater destinations, Belize, Mexico, Bahamas, um, Florida, et cetera. And, uh, um, that again allowed me an opportunity to travel, see a lot of the world, experience a lot of fisheries, gain a lot of knowledge about fisheries and the the needs of of quality tackle in some of those environments. Um, you know, much much different than catching six inch brook trout in a small Colorado mountain stream versus you know somewhere in the in the tropics pulling on a 150 pound tarpon. Um, you know, in the, in the gear requirements, it just it kind of put those pieces together, if you will. Uh, so I think those were some of the biggest highlights for me in terms of the, the, the time at front range anglers. Certainly I miss the customers still do to this day and, uh, you know, miss the staff. I think that was the, the coolest part for me is I always tried to keep, um, a younger presence with our employees. So we worked with a lot of the college students and I had a couple part-time high school student students for me, but most of my full-time staff, myself and my partner, and then we, we would um, utilize that uh, 
resource of having the university there. So we had young guys and, and gals that were super excited to get outdoors, super enthusiastic about the sport and, you know, what they maybe lacked in terms of experience in the industry, that enthusiasm um, just allowed us to, to do some great things on the customer service side. And that's one thing if I was going to say I was most proud of, it would be the staff that we had assembled there um, over about a 10-year, 12-year period that was just fantastic. You know, I think set, set a very high bar um, for the service level that, that should be expected from an independent fly shop. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because my experience with fly shops always is it's kind of that core of those younger anglers that are working in the store. And they're usually the ones that are out on the water the most. So, you know, whenever I go in a fly shop, those are the people that I generally try to talk to because they're spending, you know, literally every waking moment that they're not working in the shop fishing. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I always knew I had a good one when they were late showing up to work the next morning because they'd been out all night fishing and not out partying with their friends. You know, it was like that, that was the type of, you know, culture that we wanted. It was just extremely fishy, which made it exciting and made it fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so, I, you know, trying to support a new family moved you to Ross and then, you know, through a series of kind of acquisitions and sales, if we kind of get in our time machine and jump forward, I guess about seven years ago, you land in Midland, Michigan, where you are now, and you were the director of wholesale for scientific anglers. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things, we were talking about this a little bit before the call, was, you know, you've got this great outdoor environment that you grew up in and you worked in in the Front Range of Colorado. I mean, I you know, I've traveled a fair amount and I don't think I've ever found anywhere in the United States where people love being outdoors more than they do in that particular part of the world. What was it like, uh, Brad, as an outdoorsman to move from that environment in Colorado to Michigan? You know, I, I, and I kind of joke about this when, when people talk to me about Michigan and man, don't you miss Colorado? And honestly, I think the hardest adjustment was, the, where we're at here in Midland, it's a very flat part of the state. I mean, flat. So um, having gone from spending so much time in the mountains and, you know, I, I mean, the, the West holds a very special place in my heart. Uh, it took me a little bit to adjust to the, the topography here. And, you know, the, the rivers are wider, slower moving, a lot of trees, uh, you know, not those open, big, arid Western valleys and stuff that I was used to. Um, so, you know, that was, that was probably one of the tougher transitions for me. Um, I've always been a warm water guy at heart as well. I mean, I like fishing for everything, but, um, you know, I love bass. I love panfish, love pike and muskie. I love all the bass species, etc. So, um, for me, Michigan was, uh, you know, kind of where I didn't have a ton of that right in Montrose, like I had living on the front range of Colorado. It literally, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's right in my backyard here. And literally from my home or from the, the scientific anglers headquarters in five minutes, I can be on some of our local rivers and have the opportunity to catch some really quality smallmouth, um, and walk, wade, float it. Um, there's, you know, some phenomenal trout fishing here, different trout fisheries. Uh, you know, I think that was certainly kind of a transition. Um, you know, some of our, our trophy trout fisheries here in Michigan, if you will, the, the blue ribbon streams and the really quality rivers, uh, had a lot of Browns. Um, they're smart. There's a lot of wood and a lot of cover. Uh, many of the rivers, uh, at least kind of up through the central belt of the state into the northern part of the, the lower peninsula are sand bottomed, um, a lot of undercut banks. And as I mentioned, uh, wood and, and wood structure in the rivers. So they, they can be difficult at times. Um, you know, and it, those bigger fish don't like to come out and play a whole lot during the middle of the day if it's bright and sunny. Um, you can move a few on streamers, but it's, you know, it's been fun experiencing the, you know, the brown drake hatches, the, the hex hatches and doing mousing at night. You know, you kind of month of June, um, if you're a pretty hardcore trout angler here in Michigan, you, you're probably more nocturnal than you are, um, uh, out and about during the day fishing, um, which, which is fun. It's exciting to me. It is different. Um, and something I certainly wasn't accustomed to, but it's been fun to, to transition and learn more about that. Um, I'm also an avid upland bird hunter and didn't have a lot of that around Montrose, kind of grew up with it in junior high, high school, college years and waterfowl hunting in, on the, 
uh, Eastern Plains of Colorado. And uh, it's been great to get back to a place where I've got a lot of that close by. So it's, you know, it's truly very much for true seasons here. Um, You know, and again, there's, there's a lot of public land here in Michigan. There's a lot of access. There's a lot of management of the fisheries and the upland and the waterfowl stuff, the things I'm really interested in. A lot of, a lot of deer hunters here. Um, so that, again, there, there's a very strong voice for outdoor recreation in Michigan, um, similar to what is there in Colorado. Uh, but again, for me, it was, I had no idea the diversity of what that outdoor recreation could look like here. You know, th- this being part of that, you know, what we would refer to in the industry sometimes as the flyover zone. And it's been so great to see, you know, areas like the the driftless trout streams over in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa, getting more press, getting more awareness about that fishery and the quality of that fishery. The, you know, we, we've got some shops and some um, anglers that, uh, you know, regionally uh, here in the Midwest are, you know, really have, have put smallmouth angling on the map, you know, as long as the industry's tried to, to promote and get more people into warm water angling, because it's the, it's more vast in terms of the number of States and the availability is just easier as a, as an entry. If, you know, if it's panfish or bass, carp, um, white bass, wipers, you name it. Um, There's so many other opportunities that you can do on fly tackle. And I think that's one of the things, you know, the the upper Midwest here has been the epicenter of really creating that market. And now it's so great to see that it's, you know, it's so much more widely accepted isn't the right word, but it's, it's seen as a good resource and people are actively going out and pursuing that as, as, you know, some of their primary fisheries. It's not all based on just saltwater trout and steelhead. Um, so there's all these, these other species, alternative species, if you will, um, that people have started to pursue with fly rod. And it's, you know, I mean, we see that in all the, the global travel too, the, the jungle markets and, um, you know, go doing the, the, trout and salmon stuff in, in Russia or taming in Mongolia, um, you know, the world's much more traveled and um, much easier to travel and experience those things. But I think it's, you know, the upper Midwest and, and Michigan specifically from a diversity of fishery standpoint and the opportunity to be able to learn um, about a lot of different fisheries and, and fly fishing or, or conventional fishing for different species. This is a great spot to be. Um, I, I, you know, honestly, I can't think of, of many other places that offer the quality of the diversity of species that Michigan does. Yeah. I was, I think we were talking before the call. I mean, I've, I've been up there and I was just blown away by exactly the same thing. And, uh, you know, to be an avid angler and outdoors person, to have all of that so close is just, it's just unbelievable. Um, you know, if we fast forward a little bit, Brad, I guess about three years ago, you were named the president of scientific anglers and, um, I was really interested to kind of, I think historically, once you left Front Range, you were in sales roles. What was it like shifting from the sales focus to focusing on production and overall management of the business? It was uh, it, it really, I mean, it continues to be a very exciting um, transition for me because I think, it, you know, even even three years into it, I'm still learning a lot. Um you know, I, I had a, a taste of manufacturing when I was at Ross. It was interesting there because as I sold Ross reels at retail and, you know, I was told, well, it starts as a solid piece of bar stock and it's machined and it's anodized and this is the, the finished good. And I, I guess in my mind, I kind of have this preconceived notion that, okay, you put this aluminum in this machine and it kind of just spits out a, a finished fly reel. Um, so to see that process and see the number of touch points that went into building each reel um, and, and starting to understand manufacturing um, certainly helped me a lot in coming into my, my leadership role at SA. Um, I, again, I would say kind of what I mentioned earlier about my staff and my team at the fly shop, the team that I have at Scientific Anglers that's leadership over manufacturing, leadership over finance, um, merch ops on the inventory and supply chain side, my sales leadership, my marketing leadership, our customer service group. Um, I am so proud and honored to be working with such a, a knowledgeable 
talented group of people that honestly, it, it does make my job much easier um, because th- they're very committed to the company and the brand and the growth of the brand in their respective areas. Um, we're a small team, certainly, and that keeps us pretty close. And we, you know, we've, we've got a great culture internally that put, puts our customer first, whether that's our wholesale customer, our dealers and distributors globally, or our end user consumers. And we, as a group, um, approach that as being problem solvers um, when it comes to product development, to our pr- programs for our dealers, to our our marketing, trying to improve people's experience of one, either doing business as a retailer with scientific anglers or as an end consumer that's a, a purchaser and user of our product in the field to help provide them with uh, uh, an enhanced or the best possible experience we can through something as which seems as simple as a fly line. Um, so I think that it, also understanding the retail side and having had those years of consumer interaction, as well as firsthand knowing the struggles that fly shops go through and um, you only have so much open to buy dollars in your budget to put inventory in your store and you've got to partner with the right brands that um, that do truly partner with you and, and collectively you help build each other's businesses. Um, I think that's helped me. It certainly helped me through my sales role, but it helps me now managing when I talk to our sales and marketing leadership and our customer service group that's engaging with consumers every day, one-on-one through phone and email. Um, I can relate to a lot of those things just from the practical experience that I've had. And I think certainly much more so then I, you know, that I, that hands-on experience and having lived through those different roles, um, I, you know, I just, I can't imagine that that's something that I, that I ever got or would have gotten through, through more time in the classroom. You know, it was just kind of like digging in and living that stuff out, um, helps build that skill set. So I think it, you know, it makes it easier for me because I can kind of relate at those different levels and understand each point of view um, and what the needs and, and wants are of those different groups to help manage our business. Um, you know, and, and it's certainly the manufacturing side. Um, while I have a much uh, broader grasp of that and understanding of it, um, you know, it's, it's still, we, we just underwent a pretty significant changeover in our manufacturing process and converted everything over to lean manufacturing. And our, so we're uh, eliminating touch points, uh, more QC further upstream, um, shorter lead times. Um, once we get everything fully functioning the way that we want it to, so from work order to inventory uh, um, in our warehouse, uh, much shorter lead time. And that, you know, it's certainly, that's been a great challenge. We took some risks there. Obviously we, we looked at our process and, um, worked closely with my, my production leadership, my manufacturing leadership and our inventory and supply chain leadership. And we, <clears throat> again, the, the, the three entities, um, along with our, you know, even our R and D person that understands our, our process and the, the makeup of fly lines extremely well was involved in helping design some of that custom fixturing and tooling that we needed to, to make that happen. So uh, we just went live with that in early January and, uh, you know, felt like we had most of the bugs worked out and we're rolling pretty good. And then along came the, the COVID-19 crisis and um, we put the brakes on for about eight weeks. Uh, and now we're coming, you know, starting to reemerge on the, on the other side of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't think I've ever uh, spoken to or read anything about a senior executive where it wasn't really clear that they had a vision about what they wanted to accomplish uh, while they were at the helm of their company. Uh, What's your vision for what you want to do at SA during your tenure? You know, for this brand, we're, we're celebrating our 75th anniversary in 2020. And um, the brand has has done a number of different things in terms of products and different product categories in fly fishing. And when it was under its previous ownership before Orvis had acquired us in, in 2013, um, you know, the, the brand over the years had done everything from uh, 
fly lines leader tippet uh you know with some acquisitions uh of when it was owned by 3m jw outfitters uh they did pontoon boats and bags uh rod outfits rod cases um fly tying tools flies at one time um one of my visions for scientific anglers our core and what we do is we build fly lines and we push technology we design through through innovation science and technology that's available and always looking again to improve durability performance solving problems to make the experience better for the angler so one of the things that we've done over the last three years four years i was involved with it when i was still leading sales is pulling back to our core so you see that we we don't play in as many product categories anymore and ultimately the goal is we want to be the best possible that we can be within leaders, fly line, tippet, and backing. Everything that connects the angler to the fish short of the fly. So as I sometimes joke, everything that's string that connects us as anglers to the fish. Um, and ultimately, that, that's my goal. We want to stay in our lane. It's what we do. It's what we're good at. It's where technology's at. Um, and our, our entire team is focused on that. So we don't look too far outside the guardrails. Um, you know, there might be an opportunity for some other terminal related products, but I don't see that scope varying real wide. Um, so, in, you know, at a time when many brands, <clears throat> not just in, in fishing or fly fishing, but just everywhere, a lot of brands diversifying in their portfolio of products and, you know, maybe may getting a little too wide to where their messaging is confusing um, we want it to be known that scientific anglers, I want it to be known that we are the best at what we do. And that is fly lines, leader, tip it backing. Now that makes a lot of sense. And you just mentioned then, you know, some folks may not have realized this, but you know, Orvis purchased uh, scientific anglers. What's it like being under the Orvis umbrella? How does that kind of change the way things work at SA? You know, it's been a, a, fantastic relationship there and and being under the, the bigger portfolio of the Orvis brand. Um, we're set up that we are a, a completely separate entity um, and we operate off of, again, our own leadership team in all facets of the business. Uh, we kind of have I would, what I refer to as our umbilical cord at a high level to the finance team at, at Orvis. Um, where we report our, our P&L to and where we do our goal setting and whatnot with. But, um, you know, they, they've been great to be there for support on the IT and the systems and the infrastructure components of the business. Uh, but we operate very much in parallel with Orvis. And, you know, that they've definitely given the brand, given me, giving my predecessor that came in at, right after the acquisition, Jim LePage, um, the, the breathing room to take the brand down its own course. We're, we're, whole, we're a manufacturer and we're wholesale only. We don't sell direct to consumer. Um, that's not something that's on the horizon for us um, anytime soon, if ever. And, you know, we, we are here to service the independent fly shops, our regional multi-door partners, our national brand partners um, here in the U.S. and Canada, as well as uh, as well as abroad globally. So, and all the guides and outfitters that support and use our products. So, um, you know, Orvis is much more complex. Um, they're omni-channel with having been a catalog company first, and then um, you know they, they have a wholesale component. They have retail stores. They have web and catalog. So it's a, a much more much broader, more complicated entity. And, uh, you know, we see very little um, of that complexity w within SA. I mean, they've allowed us to stay in our lane again. And I think that formula is one of the, one of the things that's allowed the brand to, to grow and really excel um, since the time of acquisition, which was back in 2013. Sure. And what was the, um, the problem that Orvis was trying to solve by acquiring SA? You know, they, Orvis had been a, uh, an OEM or a private label customer of Scientific Anglers for many years when it was owned by uh, the 3M Corporation. And um, Orvis was, was one of the um, brands or people that looked at 
the at, at scientific anglers when 3M decided to to get out of their non-core businesses and um, the, the fishing business was was one that they chose to to um, sell. Um, and I think you know I think there was some efficiency for the Orvis Flyline products. Uh, to own that that manufacturing, just like Orvis does with their their rod manufacturing, and that they've had from very early on um, in their existence with the rod shop that's based in Vermont. Um, so control of the manufacturing, control of you know better control of their um, products uh, for for under the Orvis brand name, um, and it was it was a profitable business. So there there was certainly a you know a, a bottom line gain in that and. I think they saw the opportunity. Um, you know, 3M was, I worked for them for a short time for this brand uh, when they acquired Ross Reels. And, um, you know, I think it was that they were great on the technology side. 3M's an amazing large corporation. Um, and it was a, a, another good experience for me to have gone through in my, my work career. I think that their focus on the business had, had wavered a little bit for the last eight to 10 years that they, they owned it. Um, that you know there wasn't a strong fly fishing background in terms of the management of the business, and had kind of taken their eye off the ball in the marketing and the needs of products um, to stay to stay competitive like they should have been within the market space. So um, I think Orvis realized and saw the vision of what that opportunity could look like if the brand had what it needed and could start to implement and execute on some of those those areas. Um, which is exactly what they've allowed us to do. Yeah, that's really great. And I know my listeners would get upset with me if we didn't shift at some point to talk about product. And, you know, it's interesting, I think, because for any of us that have fly fished for a long, longer period of time, maybe 15, 20 years or more, um, you know, I can remember where there were basically about four flavors of fly line ice cream, right? You had a double taper, a weight forward, and you maybe had some variations of sinking lines. And I mean, we've just seen an absolute explosion uh in terms of different types of fly lines and i was really uh, curious to get your thoughts about what's been driving that innovation whether it was you know we're fly fishing for more species there have been you know radical improvements in technology uh scale production costs are lower so i was really very very curious to get your thoughts on that you know i think it's that there's a number of things um and, and you're exactly right. I mean, when I got into it, you had, you know, you fished floating or sinking or maybe a sink tip, and then you had a choice in a floating line, weight forward or double taper. And maybe if you're really lucky, you had a, you had a choice for color as a consumer, um, if you wanted a bright line or a dull line. Um, and I think that as technology has improved in rod design and development, I think as the the normal everyday angler has expanded their horizons in terms of what they're fishing for and the areas that they're fishing in, whether it be trout, warm water, salt water, whatever, um, that, that the demand for different types of lines to, to perform better or to be able to deliver a fly more accurately or with more power in the wind or you know, you look at some of the, the flies that are being tied and fished for muskies and it's, you know, it's like a small chicken on a hook. Um, certainly rod plays a part of that, but man, so the, the, the line and the leader play a big part in that as well. So I, I think you're, you're spot on when you say, you know, people fishing for more species. And as that, that has blown up, that has created a lot of additional demand for other types of fly lines. And, you know, if I, if I just look at our, core and coating options. Um, you know, if we look at a trout line, we use a braided multi-filament nylon core, um, which is our most supple core. And we use a coating on those lines that is a little bit softer, a little bit more supple. So it has a, a wider temperature range in the moderate temperatures into the much colder temperatures that you'd typically be fishing trout in. Um, does that coating necessarily work in a bass line for Texas or somewhere down along the Gulf coast for redfish? Um, no, not at all. It, you know, it's limp, it's sticky. It does, it's not going to perform. We're not, again, thinking in that, how do we improve the experience for the, for the consumer? 
we need something different there to fit that environment, that temperature range, the types of flies being <clears throat> used, uh, the types of leaders being used, and then develop a taper and a product or a, a raw material makeup, a materials package for that line that's going to cater to that type of market. Um, you know, we, we go round and round in our conference room. You know, there's the dilemma of, do you have species-specific lines or do you have general purpose lines that are, you know, more based on temperature and salt versus freshwater? Um, and it's a tough one because there's, you know, so many people that um, they're going to do their first bone fishing trip. They've picked a place or a location. Maybe it's a, a lodge that they're going to go to and it's going to be bone fish is their first trip. Or maybe they're going down to Louisiana to, to catch a redfish for the first time. And for that consumer, the easiest decision may just be, it's a redfish taper. Um, okay, the manufacturer designed it for this. It's what they've put on the box that this has been built for. That's the line I should buy. It makes the purchase decision easy. But it also starts to, again, it adds up in terms of the number of lines that are out there that can be pretty daunting. So um, it, we're very careful in terms of what we add and we really have to again those are the those are the tough conversations um, they don't seem like they would be that tough because it's always easy to add product but to to look at it and say is there really truly a need for a line in this environment what is the size of that market look like is there something else we're doing even though it might you know it, it's hard to tell um you know uh, uh, a bass angler living in texas or in the south where it's hot and it's humid that the musky line that we build i'm just and this is just making an example of the musky line that we use in a floating line in northern michigan or northern wisconsin is a great choice for a floating bass line um just because it says musky and it's hard for them to you know sometimes comprehend well wait, wait a minute it says musky how can that be a bass line so it's an interesting conversation and it's one we have a lot. It's one I have with our dealers and our consumers. Um, one of the things we're trying to do more of, and, you know, now that the, we're kind of in that post acquisition, we were really in, in a, a, about a three to three and a half year transition phase um, to make significant changes in the business, really get it on a firm foundation after Orbis had acquired. Then we really focused heavily on our product and our technology and our packaging. We had, we had packaging that was several generations. We didn't merchandise well on the wall um, at retail. We needed to clean that up, really define our brand identity so that people recognized us as scientific anglers um, and had consistency across leader tippet and fly lines and our accessories, the, the few that we have. And now it's about education. Um, so we're, you know, we're doing a lot more within our catalog and on our website, um, trying to provide more detail, more information on, on each of the lines to help the consumer and our retailers, honestly. Um, cause if you're a retailer and you sell three brands of fly lines, trying to keep tabs of everybody's technologies, the length of the heads, the grain weights, et cetera, um, it, it, it's a lot on top of all the other products they're trying to keep track of to be able to, to educate and sell to their consumers. So education is high on our focus right now. And that that's, you know, we're doing more with web assets, with video um, in our print catalogs on the technical information that we're putting out on our website and, you know, plan on seeing more and more of that coming from us because that's been our, our highest consumer asked question as well as our retailers. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, too, because I think, you know, I suspect some of that friction where it's like, well, I saw a muskie on the box, I can't use it to fish for bass is kind of moving from kind of being told what to buy to understanding how the lines actually work. Um, yeah. Right. And so, you know, as I kind of think about it, I think about, you know, there's taper, there's texture, and then there are material improvements. You know, Brad, where do you think the next big breakthrough is going to be in fly lines and kind of what are the you know, fly line problems that SA is trying to solve right now? You know, I think that, I, I mean, we feel very good about where we've gotten with slickness and durability from a, just a, the lifespan of a line and the slickness in terms of generating line speed easier through the guides. 
Um, I think flotation is certainly an, an area that, that there's absolutely room to, to grow and change. Um, you know, in our process where we, we use micro balloons in our coating, and then that's coated and cured over the core. When you look at certain taper profiles, like some of the longer front tapers with a thinner profile, lighter line sizes, four weights, three weights, two weights, one weights, um, those tip diameters start to get very small. And when you have um, other materials that are that have a higher specific gravity, we rely on those micro balloons to to float the line. Um, and there's there's a balance there. You if you put too many things into your coating material, uh, you start to there's less of the actual base coating material and more of the additives, things like dye pigments and the micro balloons and slickness additives and that type of stuff to where you do start to compromise on durability. So uh, flotation is an area that, that we continue to look at and look at different technologies. Um, you know, it's an exciting time because in terms of um, polymers and whatnot that can be used for fly line coatings, there's, there's a, a lot of new development and technology change going on in that world. And we've seen that. Um, for for a number of years now, so we're constantly exploring new materials. Um, you know, we also want to be very cognizant of uh, if we if we have a wholesale change, you know, in a new family of lines or something away from what we know and have used for many years as our base material package. Um, we want to put it through the ample um, field testing with our our pros and our field test staff. Um, before ever considering going to market with that, because we feel like that there's got to be an improvement in flotation and durability and slickness as, as we go forward with any new product launches. Um, so we're constantly looking at that, looking at different methods of manufacturing um, to build fly lines. I think you know core materials are an interesting component. There's um, you know going back even in the early years of of no stretch lines when it was uh, Sue Burgess company in the UK which is now Airflow was the first to my knowledge of uh they did a Kevlar cord line and uh, I, I saw those bubble up a little bit in my time at retail um you know there's been a a, a trend towards some low stretch and no stretch type cores um, there's definitely some advantages there. There's definitely some disadvantages there. We've stuck pretty true to our standard multi-filament and our braided monofilament and our single monofilament cores. Um, from a durability standpoint, w- with a fly line, uh, the the coatings are always going to they're more pliable in some cases than the core. So there's going to be some stretch there. So we look for coating to core combinations that complement one another so that you don't have delamination of the coating from the core, which causes some pretty significant durability issues, um, can cause twist, et cetera, you know, premature cracking of the coating. So it's, I mean, I always kind of joke about this and people say, well, what do you do? And I say, well, we manufacture, you know, kind of expensive plastic coated string to put it in a nutshell. Um, and we're not necessarily the sexiest product in a fly shop because we're in a box. We usually hang behind the counter and we're just that we're a fly line. Um, but it's, there, there is a tremendous amount of science and engineering and technology that goes into, um, get, getting that right combination of all those materials to, to optimize performance. So while well, yes, there is technology games going on out there in materials that we're looking at, it's getting the right blend of all those technologies to further enhance flotation. Maybe it's thinner diameter cores with better strength. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a multitude of different things we can look at, but it, you know, I, I think fly lines are still probably one of the most overlooked pieces of gear. Um, you know, and, and for a couple of reasons, I think it's, again, it is just that it's like a plastic coil of line on a spool. Um, there's not a lot of feedback with reels. I noticed at Ross in my sales time there, you put a reel in somebody's hands, they turn the drag knob, it clicks, it moves. Um, there's color aesthetics of the machining, the feel, how smooth the handle turns, what the clicker sounds like when it goes out. There's communication that the product has back with 
the individual when it's in their hand. A rod does the same thing. You can put a rod in your hand. You can feel how it weighs. You can feel how the grip feels in your hand. You can shake it. You can put a line on it and cast it. There's feedback that it gives the consumer. Really, a line is no different if you have the ability to be able to try different lines. And it's an exercise we do with our selling team. Um, we'll take the same, as an example, nine foot five weight rod, same model, same reel, and we'll put all of our five weight tapers that we make on those reels on those same rods. Not label what they are, just number them and let our sales reps go down the line and cast each of them at you know, 20 foot increment, 30 foot, 40, 60 foot. And then you really start to realize the difference in tapers and being, you know, a half line weight heavy versus a full line weight heavy, or maybe even two line weights heavy at 30 feet from the standard. Um, what that starts to do and how it impacts the cast and the delivery of the fly. Um, and that, again, that's one of the hardest things because it's, it's impossible for a fly shop to have that many demo reels set up to allow their customers to go out and cast with them. So, um, you know, most of them are doing a good job of, of putting some different tapers in their core rod sizes for their markets and letting consumers try rods with some different tapers. And I think that's a big part of the education to help the consumers understand that you know, that there is much more value in the fly line. It's really the, the line working in conjunction with the rod to generate line speed, to load the rod, to develop the cast. And then, you know, the angler and the movements of that, the fundamentals of casting still has to be there and perform correctly. But you can take, you know, the, the best, perceived best, most expensive rods on the market. And if you mismatch the wrong line or taper to it, um, you may not be happy with the performance of that rod. On the flip side, you can take a moderately priced rod, spend more and get the right on the line, get the right line match to it and get optimum performance out of that rod to where you, you're, you're surprised at what it does. So I think that, um, you know, fly lines, while they, they're often overlooked. It, it's and, and I think anglers are coming around to that. I mean, it's I, I love the conversations we're starting to have at the consumer shows and some of the emails. And when I listen to the phone dialogues our customer service reps have in the office, um, it's great to hear people digging in deeper on those questions and starting to understand how the difference of taper or the length of the head um, can can start to impact their fishing on the water and their so. I don't know if that kind of addresses the question, but I think that's that's why I mentioned education, um, you know, as kind of one of our goals. We want to help the angler understand the importance of the line and then what each of these different lines that we make can add to your experience on the water. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, you know, in terms of, you know, whether it's work I've done with Project Healing Waters or with other groups, I think, you know, that kind of line and tippet space is probably one of the greatest places kind of in your entire setup to optimize and get a good return on your investment, you know, because if you start it, how expensive the trip is, you know, how expensive the rod and all the other gear is, you know, if you took $100 away from all those other pieces and optimized your line and tippet, you could have a remarkably better experience on the water. Could not agree more. Um, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's interesting. And, you know, shifting gears a little bit, we touched on this um, a little bit earlier in the interview when we talked about uh, COVID kind of putting things on hold um, in the factory in Midland. But, you know, how has the COVID pandemic kind of impacted, you know, SA's kind of day-to-day operations, but also, you know, is it impacting your product development cycle and when you're going to release new products to the market? So, uh, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, we, uh, with our state order here in Michigan, we were shut down for approximately eight weeks from March 24th until May 18th, I guess. Um, uh, so w- we had a very small team working from home to, you know, keep the wheels churning and stay in communication with our, our customers and our dealers as we've started to reopen and re-engage uh, with our manufacturing and, and shipping teams in the building. Um, our associate safety is paramount first and foremost. Uh, so, you know, get, getting a solid plan and training around that following CDC guidelines. 
for how to do business in the, you know, the, the coming out of COVID and, and all the shutdowns and stay at home orders um, has, has certainly been where a lot of our time and efforts been placed uh, in the past weeks. Uh, it's been embraced by our associates and, you know, we're, we're learning how to operate in that environment. I think also from the sales, marketing, you know, meetings, uh, you don't have those face-to-face break room conversations, um, the hallway conversations. Uh, you know, I've, it's been interesting because I've noticed that our our web meetings and our conference calls and stuff have, have been much more intentional um, during this time. And I think we've all learned a lot and utilized the technology tools that are available um, for you know the the, the work and work from home environment, working remote environment uh, that we've been doing now for the better part of ten weeks um, with, with large for largely most of our our leadership team. So, um, you know, we're going to slow track getting everybody back into the building at some point, and um, just right now our focus is keeping our our manufacturing help and our shipping help healthy and safe, and uh, that you know for right now just means we we keep more of our our associates out of the building that can and continue to work from home. Um, you know, re- retailers are dealing with the same, the same struggles. How do they start to reopen and re-engage, you know, getting customers back in their store for that in-store experience, that face-to-face communication, being able to put product in their hands to try a rod in the line and turn the handle on a reel or try a pair of waders on in their store. Um, and I, I, this kind of goes back to being a, a part of Orvis uh, one of the things that Orvis did with their wholesale customers, their dealers, uh, they took the plan documents and their roadmap of how they were going to reopen their retail stores um, from a, a health safety and following CDC guidelines, customer safety, and shared that with the independent retailers. And, you know, many of those are, are mom and pop operations and they're you know some of the more destination shops are much more seasonal and i thought that was a you know a a fantastic resource that um that orvis could provide um out to their dealers to help them with that if there was things they hadn't thought of or they were struggling with how they were gonna gonna re-engage in their retail world um you know i fortunately from an industry standpoint and I think we've seen that in our sales, as I've talked to some of my peers with other brands in the industry, um, the, you know, the, no better way to social distance than outdoor recreation and fly fishing being being a great option for that. And we've seen a, a, a good amount of pent-up demand as retail, what, you know, online was strong throughout the, a lot of the closures and the shutdowns. Um, for the, the fly shops that were that were focused there, but I really think that and see that the angling population as a whole is engaged on wanting to get out and fish. You read some of the articles and see some of the data on some of the state's fishing line sales, and they are um, on the increase over last year, two years, three years ago. Um, so that's encouraging to see that there's more participation, more people buying licenses in some states. Uh, and I haven't looked at it in depth for, for all the states, but I know that there's there's definitely been some really strong bright spots with that. So I, I think people want to engage. They want to get outdoors. Um, in my 36, 37 years now working in this industry, um, that's that's been a theme that I've seen when there's been economic downturn or struggles. Um People, outdoor recreation is is a way for people to kind of recharge the batteries, check out on other stuff. Um, for many people, it's their happy place. So it does allow them to step away from that and go do something close to home for personal enjoyment. Doesn't mean you have to get on a plane and travel halfway around the world. While that will start to open back up as well here, um, you know, I, I, I feel confident in that that there's so many fly fishing opportunities in most people's backyard or you know within. 30 minutes, an hour of where they live or where they work, that fly fishing will, you know, while there's going to be an impact, absolutely. I think every every facet of the economy is impacted. Um, but the fly fishing, sport fishing community as a whole and that industry has been pretty resilient during those times. And sometimes it, it definitely, um, we see new participation and people wanting to get into the sport for those very reasons. 
Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and I know, you know, IFTD has been canceled uh, for October and, you know, the kind of the later consumer shows that were kind of in March um, were obviously postponed. Do you think that kind of the industry in general is going to kind of stay on pace with the products they intended to release this year and in twenty early 2021? Or do you think they're going to say, well, since, you know, the demand is there for what we're selling now, let's do that, but let's maybe stretch our new product introduction cycle out a little bit because it's harder for us to come together in the ways that we have in the past to learn about the new products, to be able to sell them to the shops and sell them to the end consumer? I, you know, I, I, I'm sure that there, there will be some that will extend that timeline out. Um, you know, our focus, we had a, a couple of products that we were planning on doing a, a mid-year, meaning kind of late March, early April launch. Um, periodically, we will do that. And we, you know, d- just decided that the time wasn't right. There was too much else going on in the world and on people's minds. It just it wasn't appropriate to launch then. Um, and we're going to sit on those and make those part of our, our fall launch for our 21 season. Um, certainly our independent reps that travel the territories and go visit each of the dealers and show the new products and our sell programs, et cetera, to book business for um, spring 21 um, selling cycle. Uh, we're going to stay on track with that um, kind of with our normal timeline of introduction. It'll be, uh, you know, sales meetings will be done uh, remotely via, via WebEx and um, a lot more video content and tools. So we're, we're focused more on building tools for our sales reps, knowing that road travel for them may not be what they're normally used to and expect to do. And we want to, again, keep them as safe as possible, as well as our dealers. And, you know, with, with some of the dealers where they, they've got limited capacity to how many people they can have in their store at any given time. Um, we know that, you know, that makes it difficult for a rep to schedule a time during business hours to be in there to, to go in and show the new product and talk about bringing that product in. So we're, we're working to give our reps the, the tools and the dealers to one, learn about the products and be able to have as, as normal, um, the new normal of selling cycle as we possibly can. It makes a lot of sense. Is there anything that uh, you can share with us that we should be on the lookout for in the you know next say six to eight months from SA? Um, I, there's a couple of good things coming. Um, you know, we we've got uh, there, there's always stuff in the works on fly lines, and we've got a couple of exciting fly line products coming that I think will will uh, will, will fit nicely into a, a, a few markets or a few fisheries and. Um, we've also, we had a pretty significant leader in tippet, um, an entire category launch of our absolute leader in tippet that we showcased at IFTD last, um, October and started shipping then and have been shipping through the spring months. Um, a lot of our marketing focus has been on that. It's a category that as we've gotten fly lines to a, a good foundation, um, right now, and we've had some pretty significant product launches the last three, four, five years within fly lines. It was time to really refocus on leader and tippet at the same level we do fly lines. And um, I stay tuned there because there's there's definitely some some more exciting stuff coming within that absolute family and some accessory items mm-hmm. around the leader and tippet category as as well that. Uh, our, our consumers will, will start to see some of that through our social media, um, um, and our dealers will be getting information on that uh, in, in July, kind of on our normal time frame. Well, that's really good to hear, and uh, can you let folks know kind of the best way to kind of keep up with everything that's going on at Scientific Anglers? Absolutely. Our, our website, um, as, as new product comes available uh, at, at the scientificanglers.com, um, is, is kind of the best home base for all things product related. Uh, we, we are proactive on our, our social media um, platforms with Instagram, YouTube, and, and Facebook. If we've got new products and video assets there, those are, are run across those three channels. And um, if we have specific product call-outs, uh, we don't do a lot of that because most of our social media is is more lifestyle driven and, and uh, we feature a lot of our ambassadors and pros and our consumers on there. But um, from time to time, we will, we will spotlight some products uh, there. And that, that, that's certainly a, a vehicle around new product launches in the, in the fall when our, our reps are out selling that and the dealers know about it, that we start to, to push that out to the consumer base. So um, 
I'd say mid-August to 1st of September is when most of those those new items will start to show up. I'm sure some of the magazines and other media outlets, as we get press releases out, uh, you may see a little little bit of that coming um, beforehand. But the website's always the best place to go for, for the most current product assortments. Very neat. Well, listen, Brad, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me this afternoon. Absolutely, Marvin. It was a pleasure, uh, and thank you very much for having me. You bet. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It will really help us out. And don't forget our sponsor, our friends at Ascent Fly Fishing. Go to www.ascentflyfishing.com today, and if you use the code ARTICULATE10, all caps, all one word, the number 10, you'll get 10% off your order. Tight lines, everybody.